0: week on a lively experiment the demand far exceeds the supply how will it affect rhode island's timetable for vaccinating everyone who wants to get a shot and the future hangs in the balance for dozens of patients at Zamborano hospital what will the state do a lively experiment is generously underwritten by
1: for more than 30 years, a lively experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen White, Jr., and I'm proud to support this great
0: program in Rhode Island PBS. Joining us with their insights Jim Vincent, president of the Providence branch of the NAACP, attorney and legal analyst Lou Polner, and Boston Globe reporter Amanda Milkovitz. Hello, everyone. We appreciate you spending part of your weekend with us. Well, it was two steps forward, one step back, as an additional 160,000 Rhode Islanders became available for first shots of the COVID vaccine. Unfortunately, there were only about 16, 17, 1,800 involved. You could do the math on how difficult it was to get a shot. We found out late last week the website where you sign up got two and a half million page views. It was overwhelmed and that left a lot of frustrated people. We know this is gonna change, but right in this snapshot in time, it's been difficult. Jim Vincent, you were in the middle, you got your first shot in February and you have your second shot coming up. Just tell me how that process went for you.
2: The process went well for me. I went to the East Bay Community Health Center in Riverside uh, and um, I'm on the board of directors uh, there. So. They informed people that were over a certain age that uh, we're going to open up uh, next week and uh, you can uh, make
0: your appointment. So it was uh, pretty easy for me. And you were encouraging others uh, in your leadership Um, position? Tell me about that. Yes. Um, um, There's
2: this whole thing about hesitancy in terms of people of color, which I think is overrated. Uh, So what I've done is I've teamed up with Gene Baliceni in terms of his morning show to urge anybody of color that's got at least one shot to do an audio clip, 30 to 60 seconds, and email it to Gene, and Gene will play it on his uh, morning show. So that's a, a small way for me to kind of get the word out that the shot is safe, it's, it's, it's easy, and let's get vaccinated.
0: Jim, you said you thought that the, that the hesitancy has been a little overrated or the concerns. I mean, we see about this in the media. What are you hearing boots on the ground in Rhode Island in terms of, uh, in terms of minority communities and hesitancy or not? In Rhode Island, there is,
2: of course, uh, some hesitancy because of distrust of not just the federal government, but also the medical community. You know, there's a lot of good reasons for the mistrust. However, when you look at national polling, uh, blacks are the least hesitant. The most hesitant are white people, namely Republican males are probably the most hesitant of, of everybody in the country. So we're hesitant. To a certain degree, but we're less hesitant than other groups, and I think that that message does not get there. But the problem is, it's access. We need access to the vaccine. So they did. The Department of Health has done a good job in Central Falls, and hopefully, they can do a good a job in those zip codes in Providence and those zip codes in Pawtucket. Because recently, I got a statistic: communities of color, 28% of the state, we've we've only been vaccinated at a rate of 12%. So if we're ever going to get the herd immunity, we've got to do a much better job in terms of those hardest hit communities, uh, because right now, that's the problem. We've got to get to those hardest hit communities. And I'm doing anything I can do as part of the NAACP and other, other organizations and alliances to get that word out, that we need to get vaccinated, we need to create what they created in Central Falls. That was a great model what they did there. Let's create that in terms of those hardest hit communities so that everybody can get vaccinated, not just some people.
1: Yeah, Ireland a- has a bad history of rollouts. We all know that. <laughs> whether it was the DMV, whether it was UHIP, whether it was the tolling plazas, uh, historically, we just are the worst at rollouts. And unfortunately, the vaccines here are no different. And uh, I agree with Jim. I think the uh, getting the uh, outland communities uh, serviced is, is most important because anybody who lives in uh, a city or urban area I believe will have access. It's those that are, uh, like I say, out in the RFD areas that uh, I can—I I get worried about.
0: Yeah, Amanda. I wonder. This is Dan McKee's really first big bump right in the road, and I, I wondered—we I, don't know. I will ask at the briefing today. We're taping on a Thursday morning. Why, if you knew only 1,800 vaccines were going to be coming in, you would open it up to another 160,000 people? It's just going to create a lot of frustration.
3: Well, I mean, that's exactly the point. And, you know, I, I'm starting to feel like this is Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Like, we're all out there looking for the golden ticket because that's what it's like for people who are trying to get vaccinated. And you would think, you know, jumping on what um, what Lou said, we had Rhode Island had the pilot program because we were so great with flu immunization. So we had the pilot program with Pfizer. So we should have been ready for this. And there's a lot of questions about why it seems like we weren't quite ready. And jumping on what what Jim says, and, you know, and making sure that, you know, minority residents are vaccinated. I looked at the the numbers this morning on the Department of Health's Health's website. And it's interesting that the most, uh, that the communities that have the highest rate of residents were vaccinated. Highest percentage are Jamestown, north kingstown east greenwich and then we have uh central falls coming in at 38 percent. so we still have a lot more work to do
0: but it's not only communities of color because the globe reported you saw that story a third of the state police troopers so, you know, it seems like a disconnect. And I, I don't I understand why some law enforcement. What do you think about that?
3: Um, and it's funny. I had a conversation the other day with Sid Wardell over the Rhode Island Police Chiefs Association. And he said that's kind of the similar uh, situation here in Rhode Island, which is pretty surprising. There was hesitancy. They weren't sure what, what, um, what the vaccine was going to do. And now, of course, it's fear of missing out. Now they want to sign up. And, and that's what's creating a clog in the system.
0: Yeah, Lou, I wonder, we, you know, we look to Connecticut, we look to Massachusetts, we don't live in Texas. And I hear that Massachusetts is going to open it up to everybody in April and, and Connecticut. My brother lives in Connecticut and he's getting his second vaccine today. So you got to wonder, Rhode Island blames it on supply. But why are these other states able to do it quicker than us if it really is a supply issue?
1: Because they run their state better than we do. Uh, this doesn't surprise any of us on the panel, let alone any of the viewers watching this. We're just historically horrible when it comes to rollouts. And uh, frankly, I think that Governor Raimondo, uh, by her absence and her, her, her solitude over the three or four weeks before uh, McKee became governor, that had to have hampered uh, our rollout. I have no doubt about that. What, so, Jim, what do you think
0: going forward here? Uh, I, again, I think it's going to be a bump in the road, but I wonder what it's going to look like over the next month in terms of Rhode Islanders being, having access to be able to get the vaccine.
2: From what I heard, is going to be a lot better because there's going to be a lot more supply. The supply is going to catch up with the demand, and I think that those bumps in the road have been worked out. So I'm optimistic, and I, and I wonder in Massachusetts if they're kind of you know, wishful thinking in terms of what they're going to do. Let's see what they do. I think in, in Rhode Island, if we get the adequate amount of supply and we have the kind of uh, boots on the ground, uh, so to speak, in those hardest hit communities, then we will be vaccinated at, their, at the Massachusetts rate or even beyond that rate. I think it's just a matter of catching up right now, and I think we are doing it, and I think uh, it's just a matter of making sure that the hardest hit communities get vaccinated. And, uh, and I'm prepared, like I said. To do everything I can to make that happen.
0: Jim, just a question, and I, I know you haven't gotten your second shot yet. Did you have any uh, uh, reaction to your first shot? I know a lot of people may have some soreness in the arm, but that comes more on the second shot. Any issues with your first shot? I had no issues. Uh, I, uh,
2: I'm i on a, uh, a college alumni call uh, once a month, and uh, one of the uh, callers, uh, one of my classmates actually is a doctor. He says, hey, uh, before you get that first shot, take a Tylenol or, or, a, or whatever. And uh, it will make it better. So I didn't know any better, so I did. And uh, maybe that made the difference. Maybe it didn't, but that's what I did.
1: That's I great. didn't have any effects. Jim, can, you, can we just get to the fact why you had your first shot in February and you haven't had your second shot yet? That's a concern. Well, no, no. It's supposed to be three to four weeks after the first shot you get your second shot. My second
2: shot is uh, due March 23rd exactly 30 days after my first shot. So I'm fine. February 23rd is my first shot. March 23rd is going to be my second shot. That's a month. I heard it has to be three weeks, four weeks. So I didn't have a concern when I saw that it was 30 days later.
0: Okay. Yeah, us youngins, Lou, we still need to go through the process. We're looking to our elder here to uh, to be able to guide us through. <laughs> hey, watch that, Jim. <laughs> hey Lou let's shift gears a little bit uh, this is the first time this panel has been on since Dan McKee took over a couple of weeks ago he's got a lot um, he's got a lot of challenges I think it's been COVID, COVID, COVID but he has to worry about the budget there are other issues going on let me just go uh, again around the horn and then we can we can dive in a little bit what is your impression of his taking over as governor in the first two weeks and the jobs he has
1: done? I think he's a little nervous which is why he's adopting a great deal Of uh, Governor Raimondo's budget. Uh, Frankly, he doesn't have a lot of time to revamp it and do his own. So uh, I don't have any fault with that. Uh, No broad uh, based tax hikes. I like that. Uh, I'm not happy about the higher beach fees. Uh, Pot legalization we knew was coming. I think what's really good is the uh, $42 million in grants he's going to give to small businesses. And that'll be decided by the Commerce Commission. And uh, I know those applications are already. flowing in pretty rapidly. Uh, I think that's good. And I think he does care. I think he does have his thumb on the pulse of this state, uh, maybe a little more than our former governor. And all I can do is just wish him the very best of luck. Amanda, first impressions?
3: I mean, like we reported, uh, like Dan McGowan reported in The Globe, there's no real waves here. And uh, it it seems that, you know, that um, Governor McKee is pretty much a known quantity. And so there weren't going to be a lot of changes. I'm really curious what's going to happen with Eleanor Slater hospitals and Burano. I think that's going to be it is a big mess and that he's inherited. And I want to see how this administration handles it.
1: I Jim, want to what about you? You're out on that when she said there's not a lot of waste. I'm sorry, with eleven point two billion dollars, which is twice the budget of the state of New Hampshire that has no state sales tax, I have to find fault with the fact that there is no waste in an $11.2 billion budget. I think there's a ton of waste, but that's a whole nother oh, thing.
3: There, what, uh, No waves. No waves. No oh, waves, waves. Waves, yes. yes.
1: <laughs> Let's get waves that.
3: Waves is a different story.
0: Yeah. Well, and Lou, so the, the issue was two years ago, COVID threw everybody off, and we've talked about this the last couple of weeks. It ballooned up to $13 billion last year because of the federal you know, money. You, you got all that out. Two years ago, the budget was $11.4 billion, so uh, $10.4 billion. So it's gone up a full billion dollars structurally. And when that federal money runs out, that's going to be the problem, right, Lou, in the, in the outlying years?
1: Yeah, like it's always been the same story. We don't have a revenue problem. We have a spending problem. And if I've said that once, I've said it a thousand times on this show, and I don't think anybody can find fault with that statement. Yeah, it's it's the same old, same old.
0: Lou, we've had the production crew put together a series of clips we'll run afterwards of Lou saying, not a a revenue problem, it's a spending problem. Jim, what's your first impression of the new governor?
2: All right, well, full disclosure, uh, the governor has asked me to be a senior advisor on his transition team. But aside from that, I think he's doing a great job. He is spending uh, money in terms of small business. Also, he's going to create, I guess, a dedicated housing fund with the real estate tax that that that's, has been happening. So I think having housing money is going to be a first because we don't have such a fund. All the other New England states have it. Also, I think he's uh, pretty much held the line with uh, Governor Ram- Ramondo's program in terms of CCRI as well as other things like phase out of the car tax. So I think it's pretty much the same as, as Governor Ramondo, but with some enhancements in terms of small business as well as uh, the housing fund, which I particularly like. We'll have to see what happens, though, in terms of the legalization of marijuana, which I think is inevitable, as well as the wealth tax, which I think uh, is still on the board, despite the federal money that's coming.
0: Yeah, and we all know that the, at the end of the session, it looks uh, not a lot different, but look, the, the legislature gonna, is going to put its stamp on. And you're right, Lou, that the, the governor had a very short period of time to put this on. Amanda, I wonder, uh, Governor Raimondo, two years ago, totally stepped in it. And it seems that the the new Governor McKee may be doing the same thing with these beach fees. The one thing we want to do in Rhode Island is go to the beach for a reasonable price. They just passed a $400 million bond issue. And- and a good chunk of that money was for campgrounds, beaches, whatever. So why, and so I wonder, that's the one thing I wonder if that's gonna get changed between now and June. Uh, I completely
3: Jim, you Virginia, get a chance to keep your license plates, come on. Yeah, <laughs> right, that's the bonus. Come on, that's important. I, I'm completely with, with you Jim and you Jim. Uh, first of all, don't mess with our license plates. Right. Don't mess with our beach fees. This is the ocean state, you would think. You know, there, there's a few things that can stir up controversy. That's one of them.
0: Yeah. I it's, think
3: that'll
0: go away. Yeah, Lou, what was he What was he thinking? Did some advisors say, yeah, let's just poke people in the eye. We're finally getting out from COVID, and now they're going to bang you for twice as much at Musquamacut and Scarborough?
1: Well, I think his original intention was to uh, really stick it to the Connecticut people who come to our beaches. But unfortunately, we get dragged into that morass. I don't know what he was thinking. I think, like I said, it's a, he's on a, on a huge learning curve from having done absolutely nothing in an official capacity as lieutenant governor for all those years to now actually, as you say, uh, having the big boy chair and making all the decisions. Yeah, uh, It's a work in progress. Lou, what about
0: uh, legalization of pot? It does. See, you know, I, I was doing talk radio earlier this week and I likened it, you know, 25 years ago when we were proposing casinos. And everybody was like, oh, and they had those five proposals and it went down in a flaming mess. By the time it finally passed, it was kind of ho-hum. And I think five years ago, the pot issue was a lot different than it is now. The Trump administration kind of took a hands-off. They were like, well, we're not going to get all upset about pot. So uh, it seems inevitable in Rhode Island, but how do you feel about that, that it's
1: eventually going to be coming here, legalized recreational marijuana? From a regular citizenry standpoint, I think it's about time we can certainly use the revenue uh, so we can spend more than we actually bring in on pot. I'm sure that's going to happen. But what my concern is, is from the law enforcement standards, uh, you know, we can check uh, on the level of alcohol in, one, in a person's system. We can't do that with marijuana. And that means more and more t- opportunities uh, for people to be able to be high, drive impaired, and cause some serious incidents on the roads and highways in the state. Uh, The only option right now is to bring them to the hospital for blood tests, which will show cannabis in the system. But we all know that uh, from our uh, college days that marijuana can stay in the system for up to 30 days. So uh, from a law enforcement standpoint, I think it's problematic, but it is what it is.
0: Lou, did you do some research papers in college on this? It seems like you have some deep
1: knowledge. Well, yes, yes. (laughs) <laughs> I I I didn't inhale. <laughs> In the words of our former President Clinton, Amanda, you have
0: deep law enforcement contacts. If you talk with them at all about this, this is this is one part of it, right? What law enforcement's going to do,
3: and what Lou said is is exactly on point. That's that's what they're saying too, and they understand how to check for alcohol. I mean, marijuana, but it's already happening. I mean, that it is already an issue. You know, I defy you to drive anywhere in the state and not smell it coming from somebody's vehicle. So, um, and you can see it on the highways as well. So they, you know, it's something that, that will be a concern, but they're also saying that they're, they're going to adjust to it. They'll figure out how to deal with it.
2: Jim? Yeah, well, I think it's inevitable. I think uh, you know, we're going to enjoy the money that comes in, and I think uh, it's going to happen. I think that uh, Governor McKee is a little bit different than Governor Raimondo in that, rather than the state controlling it, uh, he's talking about 25 different distributors, of which five would be people of color. So I like that equity part of it uh, because I think that's certainly going to help in terms of uh, people that are then left out, and left behind, and the people that have really bore the brunt of this uh, phony war on drugs.
0: Yeah, which is uh, which is incarcerated many, many people uh, probably on minimal charges, and that, that's a whole nother discussion about. Um, where the justice system is let me shift gears uh just a bit amanda you mentioned zamber hospital and boy the word coming out now about there was this whole effort by the previous administration the raimondo administration these are people who are really need help and care this is the hospital under eleanor Sna- slater for those who don't know it's up in burrowville and just kind of throwing them to the wolves my words but it but the more we learn about this it's really disturbing
3: it's really a morass um and, and WPRI-TV found there weren't quite as many discharges as it was initially thought, but it's still a major concern. It's a concern um, for the families of, of these residents of where they're going to go. But but it's, you know, the budget is, is, is an enormous problem. And how are they going to pay for it? And how is McKee going to pay for a new freestanding facility um, to deal with these these patients and these residents and you know they're also looking at deinstitutionalization and how that's going to work i I think (laughs) where do
1: they go where do they go
3: yeah where do they go
1: yeah Lou. what about what about this well my my biggest concern right now is the lack of information coming from the state uh freedom of information requests are pretty much going unheeded and uh we just don't have a clue of what's going on and you know it's interesting they were talking about you know, one of the more notorious uh, killers in state history, uh, Michael Whitmansey, who unfortunately did what he did to that young little boy, Jason Foreman. And uh, after he was being released from prison, they put him in uh, the Zambrano Hospital. Uh, but he actually did it on his own. He had uh, voluntarily went into the system. And now because of uh, HIPAA and all the other uh, protection acts, we'll never know if he walked out two weeks after he got there. Uh, So, again, the Freedom of Information requests are significant, and right now we're just not getting the information due to uh, just red tape.
2: Jim? Well, obviously it's a big mess. Uh, It really needs to be investigated. We need some truth-telling in all of this. Uh, That's a vulnerable population. We need to take care of our vulnerable folks here in this state. Uh, I'm not quite sure if that $65 million new facility is going to make a difference in terms of this whole mess. But hopefully, it will be a part of the solution. Uh, so I'm, I'm waiting and seeing uh, what, what will happen. But I'm, I'm concerned. Because certainly, when you have a vulnerable population
0: being dealt with this way in terms of the uncertainty, that's not a good thing. Yeah. Uh, let's do this. We've got a couple other things to get to, but I don't want to short you guys on uh, outrages or kudos as I have done with our previous panels the last couple of weeks. We got going and I lost track of time. Lou, let me begin with you. Do you have either an outrage or a kudo this week?
1: I guess my outrage is going to uh, dip to the state of New York and Governor Cuomo. Uh, we can all recall the uh, the hearings in the Senate when Brett Kavanaugh was being nominated for Supreme Court Chief uh, Justice, not Chief Justice. And uh, the way they came after him with that one victim who had a very hazy memory of what transpired, if it transpired, who was present, and who even did it. But the long and the short of it is is the guns were out and the knives were out uh, from the left side of the aisle, and now crickets when it comes to Governor Cuomo. Uh, He wins an Emmy for his, uh, his speeches and his press conferences back in the day. And, uh, all of a sudden, uh, well, he earned that Emmy as much as uh, President Obama won, uh, earned his Nobel Peace Prize uh, four or five days into his administration. The bottom line here is, is that now we have six or seven credible people who work in his office who are claiming that he was totally inappropriate, and that they were sexually harassed. And uh, my point here is that they ought to go through an executive search agency as opposed to Tinder when he's doing the hiring. because. That's not working out well for
0: him. Well, they do have a special uh, prosecutor, looking not prosecutor,
1: but you know, uh, investigator
0: looking into this. And I will tell you, Lou, that the Democrats in there's it's a growing chorus from the Democrats. I don't think he's going to totally skate on this because now there a lot of the upper level people and even Chuck Schumer and you know. So I think the ball is rolling on him. But how
1: long did it take,
0: Jim? A long time. Very, very long time. Yeah, no, a long time. It was. Amanda, what do you have this week? An outrage or a kudo?
3: Um, Oh, actually, I have both. But let me just give a kudos to the unsung heroes uh, of Rhode Island, the volunteers of the disaster medical assistance team. There's about 1600 of them. They've given well over 1000 hours into vaccinations, stepping up at nursing homes. I mean, these are just ordinary Rhode Islanders who when the governor said, please volunteer, they did step up and they're doing an amazing job.
0: That's great. No outrage, just a kudo.
3: Well, let me give you this outrage. If we're going to go out of state, let's go down to Atlanta and the horrible mass shootings at the three massage parlors. I want to look in particular to what uh, I believe it was a sheriff said about the uh, suspect in the shootings, said that it was a bad day for him. And that's why he went out and shot these women. And I'm sorry. You can't say that somebody's having a bad day.
0: Yeah, I think that sheriff was probably having a bad day in his Yeah, uh, well, I think he did
3: after he said that. It's just, it was pretty insensitive. It was pretty shocking. And, um, you know, speaking as a woman, you can't say that somebody's having a bad day when they go out and kill a whole bunch of people.
0: Yeah.
2: Jim, what do you have this week? I agree, Amanda, pretty outrageous. But I have two, but really uh, the first one is voter suppression. We have over 250 bills, over 43 states in our nation, and it's all under the pretext of massive voter fraud, which we know uh, there were 60 lawsuits, and it was the OFER, OFER for, for 60, the OFER, all right? So even, I mean, Trump judges uh, actually did not do anything on it either. So what you have here is all kinds of uh, uh, bills that are going to roll back uh, voting rights in this country. Jim Crow now is going to morph into James Crow, Esquire, with a suit. Sorry, sorry, Lou, no, no, no. Dif- uh, meaning to do, to mean the, the legal profession, but it is outrageous what's going on across this country. Civil rights, voting rights, is being rolled back because of this pretext of massive voter fraud, which we know doesn't exist. And uh, you got things that are egregious, things like rolling back hours on election day. And the one that gets me the most excited or mad, people that are in long lines in Georgia, let's say, it's a crime to give them food or water. That that'll be a crime you know, would give people in long lines food or water. And the second, quickly, is in Norman, Oklahoma, there were some young ladies that kneeled in terms of national anthem, and the announcer called them F and N words, okay? And that didn't happen 20 years ago, that happened two weeks ago, and that was outrageous. I mean, to be able to do that as an announcer, he was fired. But,
0: you know, we we have a long way to go in this country. You know what was even more outrageous, Jim, is that he blamed it on his diabetes, (laughs) (laughs) right? Well, well, a guy that does that will
2: blame it on anything, I'm He sure. became a racist
0: because he had low blood sugar, right? Well, what's more
2: impressive? I mean, well, you know, I mean, he needs to be he needs to be gone completely. But what was the, that, Lou? Voter suppression and and that,
1: that those young ladies in, in, in Norman, Oklahoma, did not deserve it. To, to Jim's point about the sports announcer, yes, he should have been fired summarily, and he was. But what's more impressive is that the girls' team that he was referencing went on to win the championship. So major kudos to those kids. Yeah, no, that was good. And
0: voter suppression is a problem in this country. Yeah, no, we uh, we just have a couple minutes left. Amanda, we talked to you the last time you were on. This is your ongoing wheelhouse of nursing home visitations. And you think of the population that affects in Rhode Island. And I just wanted you to bring us up to date. We have about two minutes left. On the issue, just to set the table, of course, nursing homes were ground zero for a lot of COVID, but there's really been a lockdown on the families getting in there. Any movement recently, and where do you see this going?
3: Okay, so there's starting to be a little bit of movement, and I think it's had to do with publicity, uh, thanks to the families who are coming forward and speaking about either the conditions that they're finding their loved ones in or the fact that they've been locked out. Also. the committees in the house and the Senate have been taking up legislation to look at mandating that essential caregivers can be involved uh, during an emergency this is something the nursing home industry is fighting they're saying they don't have time to train these people they don't they don't want them to possibly introduce a virus the families say we're the last ones we're going to do that we're going to take care of our folks um, but but Jim it's still ongoing and it's really it's really a tragedy how many people um, have died without you um, being able to see their loved ones, being, being unable to hold their hands. And um, they're allowed in sometimes at the last minute when their person is dying. And um,
0: But last yeah. I checked, they're worried about the virus. Everybody
3: in the nursing home has been vaccinated. Right. So right. where's the concern? What is what is the harm of letting people in now? They're starting. Some are starting to roll it back, but you know, The pandemic isn't gone. So maybe they'll roll it back now, but we still have these variants out there. And families are very concerned that they'll get two steps in and then be forced back out again.
0: Just quickly, isn't there also a a divide between the health department has said you can do this, but each individual home runs its own show right
3: absolutely they do and the health department does defer to what the nursing homes want to do because they are on the ground and it's interesting because there's also divide in the nursing homes a lot of the staff are telling the families and telling me look we want them in here they help us they'll wear ppe they'll work directly with their loved ones Um, but the administrators don't want to take the chance
0: okay folks that is all the time we have what an all-star panel lou pulner And Amanda Milkovitz and uh, Jim Vincent. Thank you so much, folks. We're not done yet. We're going to do our Lively Extra bonus segment. We have a couple national issues to talk about. So join us at ripbs.org slash lively. For the rest of you, come back here next week as the Lively Experiment continues. Thanks for watching. Experiment is generously underwritten by
1: For more than 30 years, a lively experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen White Jr. and I'm proud to support this great program in Rhode Island PBS.